0: So then the guy called me and he actually set up a meeting with me in an alley in South Boston. And it was two in the morning and he said, I have to come alone. (laughs) And it got really, really weird.
1: Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. Ben Mesrick, welcome back. We're talking about your book, The Midnight Ride, from Grand Central Publishing, which came out on the auspicious date of 2222. And my first question about this book is, when is part two coming out? And uh, are there galleys available? And can I get one?
0: I know. So I did leave it on a cliffhanger that upset many people, including my dad, who yelled at me after he finished reading the book. <laughs> I am finishing up the sequel right now. It comes out next summer. So it'll be out in August. And... It is, as of right now, entitled The Mistress and the Key, and it picks up exactly where this one left off to the minute, so you will be able to continue the story very soon.
1: (laughs) Excellent. So yeah, for uh, those of you who haven't read it, it does end on a cliffhanger, but it is a very satisfying book. Ben, you write fiction and nonfiction. This is not your first work of fiction. Well,
0: I'm mostly known for nonfiction, so all of my successes have been in nonfiction. (laughs) You know, 21 and The Social Network are my Mm -hmm best known projects, but I've written 20 something books and I would say five or six of them have been fiction. The biggest one before this was a book called Seven Wonders, which I wrote, I think in 2014, which we're actually making into a television show with Amazon right now. Hmm. So people will know about that book in about a year. (laughs) But yeah, this is the first kind of Da Vinci Code style thriller I've ever written or a mystery or whatever you want to call this historical thriller. This is different for me, for sure. I'd never Mm. written anything like Midnight Ride before.
1: I mean, you nailed the genre. Like the the things that stand out to me about this genre are you sort of have to have really intense detail Mm. about everything, A, to suck the reader into the world, but B, because some details become really important later and you don't want to tip which ones those are. So you have to be really detailed about everything. And it's just such a page turner.
0: Yeah, weaving mystery into it. And every scene kind of matters as you get deeper and deeper into it. But it's really a thrill ride written to be very fast, you know, to read on the airplane. (laughs) I mean, I love Dan Brown. I love the Da Vinci Code. I love that National Treasure was one of my, you know, all time favorite movies of all time. And so that is what I was attempting to do here for sure.
1: Yeah. Like Da Vinci Code meets National Treasure. Like that could have been the proposal, (laughs) but it's definitely different than both of those. And I mean, National Treasure, I I would call those guilty pleasure movies for me, you know, this is a little deeper. Do you approach fiction and nonfiction differently? And if so, how?
0: I approach nonfiction like it's a thriller, like I'm attempting to write a movie on the page. So mm-hmm. all of the facts are correct. I do all of the research. I spend a lot of time with my characters. But when I sit down to write it, I write it like it's a thriller. And so when I approach my fiction, I kind of do the opposite, where I approach it like it's a true story. My goal is you read my fiction and you think it's nonfiction, and you read my nonfiction and you think it's fiction. So I really approach them similarly in the research phase. I do all of the research I can. I have experts on all the different things. I talk to people who are have basing the characters on and I get really deep into all the settings and then I write it and most of what you read in the Midnight Ride is factually correct. Mm -hmm. I play with it obviously here and there and make it dramatic. But similarly to my nonfiction, I don't want you to be able to figure out what's real and what's not. And so when you sort of look back into the history of all of the different things I'm talking about in that book, the Boston Tea Party or all of the different monuments along the Freedom Trail in Boston, all of that's real. (laughs) All (laughs) of that is based in real history or real experts.
1: I had an interesting moment at a uh, party yesterday. I recommended your book to an MIT PhD candidate who was oh. doing her dissertation in architectural history. And, you know, she asked me to describe it. And I just said, it starts with an art heist and yeah. you're going to really love it. And she said, oh, was that the, like, there was some, like, unsolved art heist.
0: So the Gardner heist is the, yeah. you know, the biggest unsolved heist in history it was basically half a billion dollars worth of paintings mm-hmm. lifted in the middle of the night by two guys dressed as cops from the Gardner Museum in Boston in 1990. And these have never been returned. And they're incredibly famous works of art. So you can't fence them. They can't be sold. They can't be Mm -hmm. displayed anywhere. But what's really weird about this theft is that there were two objects stolen that were hard to steal, took effort, that are valueless compared to the paintings. And nobody knows why. So that's kind of the beginning of the story. I have a personal connection to the Gardner Heist in that about 15 years ago, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. And people pitch me stories all the time. And it was a guy who claimed to have been one of the people who robbed the Gardner Museum. Hmm. He called me from a payphone. He said he was breaking his parole. He had just gotten out of 10 years in prison for a very similar art crime. And he told me just enough in the phone call that made me think that he might be for real. I checked with some of the stuff that he said, and I had FBI sources, and they were like, well, that is true. So then the guy called me, and he actually set up a meeting with me in an alley in South Boston. And it was 2 in the morning, and he said, I have to come alone. <laughs> and it got really, really weird. And I got too nervous, and I ended up you know, trying to say, okay, I'm going to bring someone with me. I tried to change where we were going to meet. He got really pissed. He hung up, and I never heard from this person again. So for 15 years, I've always wondered, could I have been the person to solve the Gardner heist? And so that's what kind of informed me when I started writing this story. You know there's a 10 million dollar reward for information that leads to these paintings it's just one of these unsolved mysteries that has just been around forever and that's something that i was very really intrigued by
1: so so you you just couldn't bring yourself to meet an art thief in no. a darkened alley in southie
0: i mean listen I, I get pitches like this all the time and you God. always have to in your head figure out how safe is this <laughs> yeah. like, and this didn't feel safe it felt like anything could happen in this situation and and You know, frankly, if I were a younger writer, if I were at a different point in my career, I probably would have done it. It just didn't feel right. And so I didn't ever do it. And he had told me some really intriguing things that this book is somewhat based on. So when you find out in this book what is stolen and why, it's a little bit based on a real thing that may have actually been part of why that object was stolen. The interesting part about it was that what he told me and what I did use in the book was that these valuable paintings were not the purpose of the theft. And mm. that's kind of a spectacular piece of information. And so anyways, yeah, that, that's the beginning, yeah.
1: Yeah, I had no idea that that theft was real. Oh, yeah. So that blew my mind that my, my friend was like, oh, yeah, that's a yeah. real thing. And you
0: can go to the Gardner Museum in Boston now, and they actually have the frames. They left all the frames, and they're <laughs> empty. So you go through wow. the museum and see all the empty frames. And it's a beautiful museum. Highly recommend you visiting it if you're in Boston.
1: I will. I thought the the most poignant visual metaphor in the book for me was when they go into Haley's apartment and she's got a big puzzle of just white pieces that she's putting together. So I thought, okay, this is the author putting this story together. Right, right,
0: right. You know, it's interesting. There are people who do this, who actually do puzzles that are just all one color. And I'm a big (laughs) puzzler. I have puzzle tables that are set up. I do puzzles almost constantly. I have them working on a puzzle. And I'm into people who can do it. It's amazing to watch really expert puzzle makers, because they don't need to see the box, right? They don't need to see the overall picture. They can put it together from the pieces. And that's Haley, this main character. She's Mm -hmm. a card counter. She's hitting a casino in the opening of the book. Mm -hmm. And that leads her down this rabbit hole of this mystery. But she's someone who needs to solve things around her. She gets off on solving puzzles. And so yes, the whole book kind of unfolds that way.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I guess one of my questions is just how How do you put this all together? Because it's so complicated. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, this story was really interesting. I don't know if you know how this book came about. I don't. Basically, here's what happened. So in the midst of the pandemic, this was really in the worst period of the pandemic a year and a half ago, I think it was in the winter. I got a call from the Boston Globe and I was, you know, a total hypochondriac, anxiety ridden person before the pandemic. So I was (laughs) locked up in a basement, basically, like everyone who just went crazy about it. And the Globe called me up and said, every day is horrible news. You know, the the stories are all, you know, very negative. We want to do something in the paper. We want to do something serialized. It's going to run every day for 20 days. Would you be interested in writing something? And I said, you know, I'll do it, but only if I can do something I've always dreamed about doing, which is a Da Vinci Code style thriller. I don't (laughs) want to do my nonfiction. I don't want to do stream of consciousness. I want to do a really intense thriller that takes place in the streets of Boston, Boston's own Da Vinci Code. That was my plan. And I was kind of hoping they'd say no, because honestly, (laughs) it was a scary ask of them. And they said, no, you can do it. You can do whatever you want. So I literally wrote this book in the first draft. I would hand in a chapter at four in the afternoon and it would run the next morning for 21 days. And by the end, we had an audience of 200,000 people reading it every day. It was this huge kind of Boston book club. And what was crazy was I was coming up with this very intricate plot. I mean, if you read the book, It's really insane, but I had to do it in these snippets that always ended in a cliffhanger because you didn't want to lose your audience each day. So if you read the book, the chapters are all short. They always end in something that drives you to the next chapter. It ran on the front page of the Boston Globe for 20 days in the midst of the pandemic. Then what happened was I finished it and I started getting calls from my agent in Hollywood. And he was like, are you doing something in the Globe? Because I hadn't even told any of my (laughs) representatives for free. I didn't even think about it. It was like for the city of Boston, just let people read something. And they're like, well, we're getting all these offers for it. And I was like, well, who's offering? But <laughs> so then Steven Spielberg bought the movie rights because he was, <laughs> they were all excited about it and it was this really neat thriller. So I ended up selling the movie rights based on what I had written for The Globe. And then I sold the book rights and then I extended. So what I wrote for The Globe was about 20,000 words. And what I ended up handing in was about 80,000 words. So I quadrupled the book and added in a lot more detail and excitement. But it really started as this, crazy project that I was writing on the fly, intensely researching it all night long and then writing it all morning long and then handing it in. So it reads different because it's written like that in this staccato, very fast, drive you from chapter to chapter to chapter.
1: That's so cool. That's also how all the greatest novels of the 19th century were written.
0: Right. It was the idea was go back to Dickens, go back to this sort of feeling. And, and what the Globe did was really amazing. And it ends up being very, very successful for them. So hopefully we'll we'll do it again at some point.
1: So you've collaborated through all these amazing books that you've written. You've collaborated with some really great storytellers. And can you tell us just what are some things that you've learned by working with these amazing people like Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher and Steven Spielberg?
0: There's so many lessons that I've learned working with these people. I mean, everyone's different, first of all. Everyone's stylistically very different than me. I'm a, a very optimistic, upbeat. I don't need to be a perfectionist. You know, I'm not a dark writer. I I write very quickly. It takes me a few months to write a book. So I have a book every few months. Aaron Sorkin is similar. He's very fast. He's very intense. And he, you know, lives it as he writes it. You know, he famously broke his nose while doing dialogue in front of a mirror. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm similar in that I act out my scenes. When I'm doing my research, I run around with the main characters and I live with them for like six months. I mean, I Followed the Winkleweitz winds around New York. I hung out with Russian oligarchs in London for three months to write a book. I followed a UFO hunter in the mountains of Colorado for a book I wrote called 37th Parallel. I believe in this method writing style where you live it as much as you can. Gonzo journalism. Gonzo journalism, exactly. I feel like the rules sort of are there and you should try and fit into them. But if you can't, just go ahead and break them, you know? <laughs> and I really enjoy that. You know, it has to be fun, it has to be exciting. I've also learned to sort of except that other people are really, really good at certain things that I may not be good at. And so when you're having a project adapted for Hollywood, you can't sit there and say, well, I would do it this way, I would do it that way. You have to choose people who you think are brilliant, who you've seen their work, and then let them do their thing. If you've got David Fincher involved, let him make that movie because he knows how to make a great movie. So try and sell your projects to people who know how to make great things and then let them do what they do. So I'm actually the easiest writer in the world when I get to a movie set because I'm like, do whatever you want. I think you guys are geniuses and I know it's going to be brilliant. But everyone's different. There are lots of big, big egos in, in Hollywood. And so you have to accept that it's just a lot of fun. But then come home to Boston. <laughs> you hmm. know, for me, I was never going to move to L.A. and get into that scene in that respect. I was always going to be the Boston based writer who goes out there for a week and then comes back home.
1: So you've got several hits and you had some early hits. Does having like these hits behind you affect the way that you write?
0: It's really interesting. So, you know, you throw these things out there and some of them are going to be these massive home runs and some of them are just going to be singles and doubles. And you can't really tell, you know, every book I've written, I've said, okay, this is going to be huge. This is just (laughs) going to be a monster book. And then sometimes it just doesn't, right? You can't control that. You don't know what's going to work. There's luck involved. There's timing. There's so many different things that go into a book just exploding or not exploding. When you have something like The Social Network come out, certainly you want that again. And one of the things you need to learn as you grow as a writer is that you had that. That happened. That was this incredible moment. If you spend the rest of your life trying to recapture that moment, you're going to be miserable. Because lightning strikes, maybe it's not going to strike again. You don't know. You don't know what went into that. Everything was perfect. You know, you had Aaron Sorkin, You had David Fincher. You had Trent Reznor. You had... You know, Jesse Eisenberg, it's sort of the best moment for him. And you had Facebook, this phenomenon that exploded right at that moment. It became a cultural touchstone. And yeah, it was incredible. You're running around the Oscars and you're hanging out at Oscar party, You're just doing stuff that you would never do. And maybe you'll never attain that again. And you have to be okay with that. (laughs) It's tricky sometimes because you write the next book and you're like, okay, this is going to be the social network all over again. And you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, you don't know. But what I've learned, I think is that there's so many wonderful things that happen and each one is wonderful for its own reasons. And you can enjoy it. You can enjoy walking to a bookstore and seeing a new book of yours. And that's an incredible moment that you get to have every time you write a book. And even if it's not the social network, it's still an incredible moment to you. I love speaking, I love going to high schools and speaking to kids or even corporate events or whatever. I love telling stories. And for me, that's the height of it. So the excitement to me is finding an incredible story, finding a way to tell it, and being able to tell it to audiences again and again and again. And so, I mean, it definitely when you have crazy success with a project, it affects you. For the next couple (laughs) of years, you're just in that weird place. But it also happens so fast. When you have an explosion like the social network, that six months goes by in the blink of an eye. You don't even remember it afterwards. And you're like, was I really there? Or I was on a private jet with Justin Timberlake or like, you know, all of these things happen. And then you're like, now you're sitting at the cheesecake factory in Boston (laughs) three years later, you know, and thinking, did that all just happen to me? Or was that not real? So you, you, you live it, you enjoy it while it's happening, but then you need to just move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I've always been the person moving on to the next thing. That's been one of the things from when I first set out, I never set out to write a book. That was never my goal. My goal was to have 20 movies and 20 books and, you know, have a career that spanned the rest of my life. That's what I set out to do. So each kind of book, I never sat on it. You know, even as The Social Network came out, my next book was already coming out. And the book after that was already sold as a TV movie. And, you know, it was already thinking three projects ahead. And I think that's important. I think you need to just think of it. um, This is your life. It's not that one moment. You're living a whole life. And so you have to try and live that whole life.
1: That There's really interesting balance between enjoying the hits as they're happening, yeah. but then knowing that you have to move on.
0: Yeah, I mean, because it's an incredible moment, and it's really exciting when you're in that moment, and it's really important to try and experience that moment, because it happens so fast. It really does. The next thing you know, it's over, and you're on to the next thing, but you really do have to think about it as just one thing that happened, huh. not as the, that is the focus of my whole life and everything's downhill from here, because <laughs> that'll kind of make you pretty miserable if you think about it that way. And maybe when I look back at my life, I'll look back and say, well, that was cool and that was cool and that all kind of sucked. But for me, <laughs> I want it all to be fun and happy. And as I said, I'm a very optimistic, like happy writer. My brothers describe me as like a muppet, who just kind of bounces through life and everything wonderful is happening. Oh, look at that, look at that. And that is how I live my life. My roommate in college was this very dark writer, Scott Stossel. He runs the Atlantic Monthly and he mm-hmm. wrote a book called My A Gem Anxiety. He's just an incredible writer but he's dark and upset and he spends 10 years on a book and hates everything he does. And he's brilliant, by the way, brilliant writer. But it's a different way of approaching it. For me, it's like, this is awesome. I'm going to do this for three months and I'm going to move on to the next thing. And that's how I approach it. And so for me, it's always a lot of fun. I mean, I think that's the best way to approach it. Don't be the dark kind of twisted thing because it's it's so fun. And also one of the other key, I think, for me is I'm not a perfectionist. I'm really Hmm. the opposite of perfectionist. I don't need it to be perfect. It doesn't even have to be close to perfect. I write it, I hand it in, I'm happy. And you know what? It may not be perfect.
1: Janet Maslin be damned.
0: Right, exactly. She's going to make fun of it. I think the first review I got in the New York Times started and it said, this is a bad book. Someone should make it into a movie. That was the first line of my first review. And I loved it. I was like, you know what? That's fantastic. Have at it. You know, life is short, right? And I'm lucky enough to be doing something that I love to do. And I'm lucky enough that I've had enough success that, that I know people will read it when I write it. And so have fun, you know? It doesn't have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. You know, it's not going to be for everyone. Some people are going to love it and some people aren't. And that's fine.
1: How do you get access to these people that you write about?
0: It's interesting. So I'm not the journalist who comes in with like a tape recorder and a notebook. I'm not trying to out anybody or get anybody. I really want to tell people's story. The way they want to tell their story. Hmm. I think that comes across. I'm the guy at two in the morning in a bar with you, or I get on the plane with you wherever you're going, or I go to Vegas with you and I'm hanging out in Vegas with you. So I think that people are willing to open up to me because they know I'm not a threat. I will say, as I've gotten more successful, it gets trickier. Hmm. Writing the GameStop story, there were hedge fund people who certainly did not want to talk to me, right? Who knew that nothing could be gained. And those people you have to get to, it's much more difficult. But I have tons of networks. I have antennas and tentacles everywhere. So I can pretty much get to anybody. I'll find someone who finds someone who finds someone. And I find my way in. You know, having a movie like The Social Network is a double-edged sword. In that people know who you are. So if you're a Mark Zuckerberg, maybe you don't want to talk to me. But if you are next to Mark Zuckerberg, you do want to talk to me. Because you want to see yourself in a movie. So I have access to certain people who want to see their stories come to life. And then the people who have nothing to gain are the ones that are more difficult to get to. But, you know, I've worked on this for a long time. It's finding my way into things. I'm like a fly on the wall. I'm just a guy at late night who's just hanging out in the corner of the bar who you tell your story to.
1: (laughs) That is how your books read, as like, you've really got the inside scoop somehow.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I tell my stories from the point of view of the characters and they know they're going to get to tell their story. And sometimes to a fault, I can sometimes make them seem better than they are because I just want their story to come out. So sometimes people who maybe aren't doing the right things, I get behind why they do their thing. Everyone is the hero of their own story, right? Nobody sets out to be the villain. No one thinks of themselves in that way. Everyone thinks they're the hero. Let's hear why you did what you did, and I will tell your story the way you believe it happened. And you know, sometimes these people rationalize things or whatever, but I'm willing to get on board with their rationalizations, at least for the scope of the story.
1: That's a great place to ask you our final question, which is to just recommend two books to our audience.
0: So I'm really into sort of biographies right now. I'm reading the, the Rolling Stone biography right now, um, Jan Wenner's biography, which I think is just someone, I mean, you, but someone who's into music and rock and roll. I, I love, I love rock biographies. Mm-hmm. I thought Slash's biography was awesome. It was, <laughs> it was quite a trip, you know, and I think that's a good one too. I am going to read Matthew Perry's biography next.
1: I'm sure it'll be interesting.
0: I'm into it. You know, I'm into celebrities. I'm into sort of people who live larger than life lives. I think there's just something really incredible about people who probably should have died, uh, but somehow made it through. I think that's why I love the rock biographies. I loved Keith Richards' biography. I did. I mean, the first quarter I skipped, you know, but once he's in the Rolling Stones, wow, what a a story that is. I mean, that guy should have died 20 times in the course of that book. (laughs) (laughs) So it's pretty awesome. So I recommend those. I'll, I'll just say those books for now.
1: Fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you're thinking, I would like to do something simple and easy to help out this show because I really like it. The thing you can do is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's super simple, takes a second, doesn't cost anything, and it really, really helps the show out. My book is about music. And because writing is new and difficult for me, I put a post-it note on my computer that just says, you love music and you love writing. <laughs> and love so it. every moment when I'm just like, you know, ah, oh, editing sucks. I'm just like, okay, no, this is cool. This is only to be two seconds and it's going to be over and then it'll be great. <laughs>